Well, I want to ask you to turn this evening to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to commence reading at verse 25, and read through to verse 31. So Hebrews chapter 10 and the verse 25, and let's hear the word of our God. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for off judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. And we will look to the Lord to help us and to bless us even as we come and gather around His truth and His Word. Let's seek the Lord in prayer and you pray along and that the Lord will come and solemnize the atmosphere and send deep conviction upon the hearts of those who are not saved amongst us. Eternal God and loving Father, we thank and bless Thee for the opportunity again to read thy word, to join together and to worship thy name. We thank the Lord for this blessed privilege, O God, that is given unto me and the responsibility to preach the word. Lord, more than ever, even more so this night, O God, I feel my need. Lord, I look to thee, Father, and I pray that thou would help me. And pray, O God, that thou would wash me in the Savior's blood, I confess my own unworthiness. I confess, O God, that need of a fresh cleansing. Look upon thy Son, O God, and I pray that thou would see me in him. And Lord, that you would look upon all that I need. And I pray that thou would grant unto me the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank thee that thou hast promised to give the Spirit to those that asked of thee. And I asked in faith. And thou now receive the promised Holy Ghost. And I pray, O God, that thou would take the word this night. And conviction would come, O God. We pray that thou would search out those that sit amongst us that are not saved. We think of the youth in the gallery. And all are scattered in the ground floor. Those online. Lord, so easy to be distracted in their own homes. Maybe people coming in and out. All their notifications popping up in their technology. Oh God, we pray that thou would silence, Lord, the, the old adversary, the old one that would come to distract the mind and to snatch away the good seed of the word. We pray, O oh Father, Lord, that thou would speak by the Spirit this night. We pray that thou would grant salvation unto those for whom Christ has died. Come, O oh God, leave this preacher not to himself, a very lonely place here in the pulpit, but Lord, be at my elbow, stand at my side, and help me, O God, I pray, 
Thou hast given a word, and we pray that Thou would help me to deliver it. I give myself to Thee, and I pray this in the Savior's lovely and precious name. Amen. You've no doubt heard or used the phrase, the privilege few. But it refers to a small set of people who are treated better than others or who have special and more advantages than others. Now, many seek to compare their situation, their advantages, their possessions, their comforts only with those who are affluent or wealthy in this country. Their comparison does not take them across land borders and continents to compare themselves with those that live in third world countries. The fact is that those of us in Western society, we are highly privileged. We have advantages and comforts that only others can dream of. We have fresh, clean running water. We have, by and large, reliable, constant energy supplies. We have cupboards and larders and fridges and freezers that are full of all manner of food, stuffs from around the different regions of the world. We have wardrobes and drawers that are packed with a vast selection of clothes and, and garments. We have rooms that are filled with furniture and ornaments and technology. We have concrete, insulated walls and tiled roofs, double glazing, oil-fired central heating. We have good sanitation and a sewage system. We have shops filled with all manner of things and a, a large ranges which provide us with a selection and a choice of many different things. We have health and social care, access to education. We have good transport links. We have tarmac on our roads that are not very often washed out by the storms. On average, there's at least two cars in every household. We have a police service. We have a fire service. We still live in a democracy and not a dictatorship. We still have civil and religious liberties. The reality is we belong to the privileged few of this world. Our privileges, they not only extend to our temporal and physical blessings, but also to the spiritual. There are untold millions, even billions, who have never heard the gospel and know nothing of the Lord Jesus. Yet men and women in this land are privileged to live in a country so blessed and infiltrated with the gospel of Christ. Gospel texts at the side of the road. Gospel tracts, gospel open airs, door-to-door evangelism. We have the churches who are faithful to Christ and His doctrine. You in this congregation, you cannot say that you have not been privileged with gospel preaching over the years. You've been encouraged to open the book and search the Scriptures for yourself to see if those things are so. You have a trustworthy translation of the Word of God, or at least you can get one readily in this land. All the advantages that you and I have, you and I belong to the privileged few. Well, Paul is writing here to a people who were privileged. The Jews were a blessed people with many spiritual advantages, and there were those among them chosen by God who trusted in Christ. Now, these verses that we have read are often misunderstood. They're verses that are used by those who falsely teach that you can lose your salvation, but that's not in agreement with the analogy of faith. It does not agree with what Scripture teaches, nor what with the Lord promised Himself. To say that one can lose their salvation is a denial of the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It suggests that he did not accomplish, he did not finish anything. Rather, he only made it possible for one to have eternal life not certain. But Christ came to do a work. Christ came to finish a work. Christ came to secure salvation for his people. So how then are we to consider these verses and others like them? Well, the object of them is not to induce a sense of foreboding in the Christian, to bereft them of any hope or comfort that any point along the pathway of life that somehow they might fall from grace. Rather, they are words which summon all who trust in Christ to follow Him and to press on with all diligence and care. They're, the way of faith is a way of obedience, as we learn in chapter 12. Let us lay aside the weight and every sin which doth so easily beset us. This is a general warning. It's a warning which a true believer will take to heart and will cause them to repent from persisting sins that would otherwise lead others to final apostasy. These words, they deal with the apostate and are often considered in connection with other portions in the New Testament that deal with the unpardonable sin, the sin against the Spirit or the sin unto death. They are striking, they are solemn, and they are faithful words for those who, ex who have experienced much gospel privilege. Now, there's much that I could draw out from these verses this evening, but I want to leave three points under the heading, Privileged Yet Petrified. Privileged Yet Petrified. The first thing I want to draw to your attention is the hopelessness of the Christ Rejector. The hopelessness of the Christ Rejector. Look at verse 26 with me. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now I said these words deal with apostasy, and in the opening of verse 26 we have a definition of an apostate, one who sins willfully after they have received the knowledge of the truth. An apostate is one who has received the truth, and then one who has rejected the truth. There's an individual who has received the truth totally, and yet he has rejected it totally. That is an apostate. And it's a very serious charge to lay upon someone to say that they're apostate, for as we'll see, such a one is in a hopeless state. Now, the word apostasy, which doesn't appear in this text, but it does appear in a couple of other texts twice in the New Testament. A very terrible word. The one who is an apostate is in a, in a hopeless condition. The word means, it means a falling away, a withdrawal, a defection. The word's used in Acts chapter 21 and verse 21. And there Paul was falsely accused of teaching the Jews apostasy from Moses. It's used again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the verse 2, when it says that in the latter days before the coming of the end and before the coming of the Son of God, there will be a great apostasy, there will be a falling away. Now, apostasy is not a new problem. It's not something that simply arose in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, in the verse 13, we read there, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of the city, 
saying, Let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known. Now that, in a sense, is apostasy. It is drawing away from the true God to the false gods of this world. And because of the hopelessness of such a one, I tread very carefully of using this term and to lay this charge upon anyone under the sound of my voice. It is a most dreadful and miserable state to be in. But I need to make application in the preaching of the Word, and so there is a warning for you that Christ rejected. Dare I go as far to say that you are an apostate? Will I tread very carefully? Because such a one is in a hopeless and a helpless condition. Here Paul speaks of one who has received the knowledge of the truth. For the person who has never heard the full presentation of the gospel, that person is not an apostate. He can't be an apostate. Apostasy relates to the one who has received the knowledge of the truth. Now, there are a number of words in the Greek language for knowledge. And two in particular we're going to think about here. Firstly, gnosis. Gnosis, and it means really a, a simple knowledge, but also epinosis, and that means a, a deep knowledge, a, a deep understanding, what we might call a deep perception of the truth. I go as far to say even a heart knowledge, something that's touched not just the intellect, but something that has reached the inward man. And that's the word that we have here in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. This is a deep knowledge, a deep understanding, a perception of that which is true. Paul is not saying that this is someone who has heard the gospel, but this is someone who, who, who not in a shallow historical sense but with a believing knowledge has come right up to it and they have completely understood it. They have all the information. They lack nothing. They have a deep understanding and a knowledge of it in its fullness and they know it to be true. This is the person who is in danger of apostatizing. It's that individual and I wonder, does that describe you? Have you a deep, a full a perception, even a heart knowledge of the gospel, not intellectual, not the facts, not Bethlehem and, and Calvary and all the miracles and the parables that you can list, but you have it. You have the full understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such an individual is in danger of apostatizing. That's the one. Young person, you've been cradled in the gospel. It's been explained to you from your mother's knee, from your Sunday school teacher, from the children's meeting worker, from the pulpit, and you, I dare say, have a full knowledge, a perception of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've had the privileges. Well, you, if that describes you, you are someone who is in danger of apostatizing, and the person in danger of being in a hopeless and helpless condition. Here we're told of a person who comes to Christ all the way right up to the age, as it were, and knows the truth, but then in willful rejection of the truth, 
they walk away without ever committing their soul to Jesus Christ. A conscious choice of one's own will. This is their decision. It's not the sin of ignorance. It's not the sin of weakness. This is a sin that has been planned out. This is a sin that someone knows exactly what they're doing. They're sinning against light and truth. The two men in Scripture, they're a classic example of this, Judas and, and Demas. Oh, they had received the full knowledge. They were recipients of gospel privilege. They, they lacked nothing when it came to the knowledge of the truth as it's revealed in Jesus Christ, and yet with that willful choice, they decided to turn their back on Christ, reject Jesus Christ, and go to the gods of this world. They apostatized. And they ended in a hopeless and a helpless condition. I wonder, does this describe you tonight? Are you in danger of willfully sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. When does that happen? When is the line crossed, as it were? Maybe it's already been crossed by you. Have you willfully rejected Christ already for the last time? I do not know. I'm not here to stand in judgment. I'm here to preach the gospel, trusting that the Spirit of God will convict your heart. Those are solemn questions. And there are things that should cause the sinner to tremble and to linger no longer in their sin. Well, why is that? Well, look at the end of verse 26. For such an individual, for those who have apostatized, received the full knowledge, deep perception, there's nothing lacking to know it all, and yet they willfully reject Jesus Christ and walk away to the gods of this world. For that individual, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. The only way an individual will ever get, enter into the presence of God is if their sins are removed. And the only way that sins are removed are by sacrifice. We read, without shedding of blood is no remission. There's no forgiveness. So there must be a sacrifice for sin if you are ever going to be saved. The only sacrifice. The only sacrifice by which sin is forgiven and washed away is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you reject that, well, I tell you, there is no other sacrifice for sin. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ, you shall die in your sins. And where He is, you will never be. To read, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins would have been so hard-hitting to the Jews. Because there was these Hebrews to whom Paul was writing, and among them some were turning around and they were going back, they were heading back to Judaism. They were heading back to the old sacrifices, that old sacrificial system. And yet all those sacrifices, they pointed to Jesus Christ. The old economy was made obsolete by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there they were turning their back on the one great sacrifice and they were going back to their old way. For them, there would be no forgiveness. There would be no pardon. 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 14. We read there of Eli the priest, and he had two degenerate sons, Hapni and Phinehas. And this is what God said of them. This is what God said of those men. 
nurtured in all covenant blessings, in the very household of the priest of Israel. And yet God said to them, And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Those men had passed beyond salvation. They had rejected the truth willfully. And the Lord said of them that there was no sacrifice, there was no offering that would ever purge away their sin. God, in effect, said that they had stepped outside the bonds of mercy and grace. No sacrifice at any time would atone for their sin. That was their fixed hopeless state while they lived on this earth. You see, there comes a day, sinner, when God's mercy runs out. He's been merciful to you. But He said to those before the flood, My spirit shall not always strive with man. Read something similar in Hebrews chapter 6. And there we read that if a sinner who has had all the revelation and they turn around and they walk away, it's impossible for him to be renewed again unto repentance. See, it's only by the cross work of Christ and His sacrifice that any are saved. We sang, there is no other way but this. I shall ne'er get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. I used this true anecdotal story at the open air on Friday. In Chicago, many years ago, there was a bar, and it was called the Gates of Hell. And there was a young man, and he came to that city, and he wanted to go to that bar that was named the Gates of Hell. And so he stopped a stranger in the street, and he asked him, Can you tell me the way to the Gates of Hell? Now, on that street, there was a little church. And it was called Calvary. And the man knew where this bar was called the gates of hell. And he said to the young man, he says, you're not far. Just keep on going the way you're going and go right on past Calvary and you'll come to the gates of hell. Sinner, it's the same for you. You may not be far from the gates of hell. And you just keep on going the way you're going in your sin. And if you walk right on past Calvary, I tell you something, you'll not only come to the gates of hell, but you'll go through the gates of hell and you'll spend an eternity lost and undone. There is no other sacrifice for sin but Christ. And see, you do not reject Him lest you end up beyond salvation. The hopelessness of the Christ rejecter. But secondly, notice the spitefulness of the Christ rejecter. Give attention to the word. Look at how the attitude of the Christ rejecter is described in verse 29. As one who hath trodden, go to the end of the verse, as one who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and had done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now we need to go back to verse 28. For there Paul begins to make a comparison. He says, 
that even in the old economy, the one who despised Moses' law, well, he died without mercy. If a man lived in disobedience to the law of Moses and two or three witnesses confirmed his disobedience, that man died. Now, we have an example of that in Numbers chapter 15. And let's turn there, please. Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15 and the verse 30. And we read there, But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in a land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from among the people, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment. That soul shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. And then immediately following, we have the account of the man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. The Lord had just warned him. The Lord has laid out His law. He had warned them, and he was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. He was doing something presumptuously. He despised the command of God. Well, what was to be done to that man? Well, God gave Moses the answer in verse 35. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. Now of God, under the law of Moses, will have a man executed for picking up sticks if it breaks his law. You can be sure that God will punish the one who rejects Christ. And we read at the start of verse 29 in Hebrews chapter 10 that it will be a much sore punishment. You see, the Bible reveals that there are degrees of sin. The shorter catechism states some sins in themselves are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And surely Christ's rejection, having received the knowledge of the truth, is right up there. It's got to be right up there. Christ's rejection. Oh, you might think, I haven't done that. I haven't done this. I haven't done those sins of immorality that others have done. But surely Christ's rejection stands at the list of heinous sins that offends a holy God. John chapter 19 verse 11. When Christ is speaking to Pilate, He says, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except that given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Pilate, you have sinned, no doubt, but Judas, Judas who had the full revelation, who had this deep perception of knowledge of the gospel, he hath the greater sin. Along with the degrees of sin, there are degrees of punishment. Christ said of Capernaum, a town which enjoyed so many gospel privileges, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment, than for thee, the hell of the Christ rejecter, who had a deep understanding of the gospel and of the truth, but turned from it, that hell will be less tolerable than those who never heard. Who can describe the torment of hell? And yet the Lord Himself says, speaks about degrees of punishment. The point under our consideration as we're leading into this attitude is the spitefulness of the Christ rejecter who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. That's treating Christ with contempt in a spiteful way. 
Let's break down that second half of verse 29 and see the vitriol in the heart of the one who has turned from Christ. The phrase there, trodden underfoot, is according to Albert Barnes' commentary, taken either from the custom of ancient conquerors who tread on the necks of their enemies in a token of them being subdued, or from the fact that men tread on that which they despise and contend. Like a naughty little boy squashing an ant under his foot, treating it as a thing of naught, as, a, as an object that is absolutely worthless. And that is how the Christ rejecter treats the Son of God. As the Spirit reveals to us here, the term Son of God, it speaks of the Savior's place in the eternal Trinity. And this rejection of Christ is metaphorically speaking stamping all over the second person of the Trinity. It's also a sin against the Father who sent Him. But it goes on. For such an individual counts the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. We could read it like this, as, as a common thing. That's what the Christ rejects her, who ends up in apostate, who ends up in a hopeless, helpless condition, as sure as hell, as if there are any in it. That's how they view the blood of the covenant. It means nothing to them. It's worthless. In their eyes, can I ask you, how do you view it? Is it something common for you, common enough to take or leave? to get up and walk out this evening yet again. Yet is there anything more pure, more virtuous, more value than the blood of Christ? It's described in Scripture as a, the precious blood. Christ's blood atonement is of infinite worth. It alone satisfied God's justice and appeased the wrath of a sin-hating God. See, that which God has provided for the sinner's cleansing and exactly what their need, will that apostate, that Christ rejecter, will they treat it as something that defiles them? Imagine, imagine counting the blood of Christ as something that would spoil you instead of something that would save you. Let me say there is no salvation but by the blood. It is by the blood that unholy sinners are made holy. And then look at the end of verse 29. The attitude, the spitefulness, and have done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The Spirit is also treated with contempt. The one who strays with the sinner to convince them of their sin, to convict them. Well, that individual is treated with, smite, with spite, insulted, as the word could be translated. One who could apply all the merits of the blood to the sinner's soul. Well, that individual, the Holy Ghost, is just brushed aside, as it were, with the back of the hand. The Father who sent the Son's rejected. The Son who came is rejected. The Holy Spirit who convicts is rejected. Rejection of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Total rejection. And that, dear friend, if it's not anything else, it's total apostasy. By the one who has received the knowledge of the truth. 
sinner, you be careful, you be warned, especially if you have an understanding of these things. Especially if the, if the Spirit of God has been dealing with you, how far is it between resisting the Spirit and rejecting the Spirit? I do not know. But you notice here that the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is called the Spirit of grace. And I want to tell you this, if you will not have God to deal with you in grace, He will deal with you under the inflexibility of His law. It's as simple as that. If you will not have Him to deal with you in grace, in the gospel, by Christ Jesus, He will deal with you under the inflexibility of His law. A law that you have broken. A law that demands your eternal punishment. The spitefulness of the Christ rejected. But finally tonight I want to draw out from this passage the fearfulness of the Christ rejected. The fearfulness and the fear that will come upon the Christ rejecter. And you might be sitting now as a Christ rejecter in this meeting and you're quite content. Well, I tell you this, fear will come upon you at the last. The king of terrors will grip your soul as you enter into God's great eternity. Verse 27. It speaks of a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That's the only thing that remains for the apostate. For the individual who has rejected Christ for the final time and has had the full knowledge and has received the knowledge of the truth, fiery indignation and judgment. Pilgrim's progress in Interpreter's House. Christian, he has a conversation which is based on this portion with a man in a cage, a man who has no hope because in his own words, listen, he says, I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood as an unholy thing. I have done despite to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises, and now there remains nothing for me but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour me, as an adversary, that man, it was a representation of those who have, as it were, passed and crossed the deadline, who have rejected Christ for the last time, who have been given over to their sin, who have sinned against the Spirit, who have committed the sin unto death, who have committed the unpardonable sin. That man was without hope. He was just waiting for the judgment and the fiery indignation of God. The everlasting burnings is what awaits, awaits the Christ rejecter. See, in the Old Testament, we have a number of examples of God's fiery indignation. We could, of course, think of His judgment of those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, for their sin. Leviticus 10, we read of His judgment upon Nadab and Abihu. Verse 2, we read, And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. 
This judgment that's promised to all who turn their back on the Lord. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, we read of Christ who will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into his garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know, this sense of impending judgment is all the more magnified in the privileged sinner's conscience, or at least it should be, by their knowledge that punishment for sin, their punishment will be all the more sore. We know that all sinners deserve judgment. Yet for those who have forsaken Christ, their judgment will be more severe. They knew the truth, but they chose their sin anyway. They knew about salvation, but they chose their sin over Christ. They could have had one who would bear their sins, but now in eternity they must bear it themselves. The knowledge of what they could have had, but rejected, will add to their torment, will add to the burden of their afflicted souls as they face an eternity of God's fiery indignation. The apostle, then in verse 31, he winds up the whole argument against willful despisers of the gospel with a warning. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To fall into the hands of someone, it's an expression. It refers to anyone falling into and under the power of his enemy. When a person falls into the hands of his enemy, there is no love between him and them. And in the ancient world, it it just led to death. It led to their slaughter, their execution. And so too with God. Turned here, the living God. The living God in opposition to the lifeless deities of the heathen. It's a title that's expressive of his eternity. And the one who falls into the hands of the one who is eternal, the duration of their suffering, the duration of their punishment, the duration of their torment, of the fiery indignation, it too will be eternal. It is God's hand that will mete out the punishment. A hand whose power is inexpressible. A hand which none can resist. We read in in Psalm 90 and verse 11, Who knoweth the power, the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. When Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon over 260 years ago, Sinners in the hands of an angry God, his text was from Deuteronomy 32, 35, but the words for his title came from this text, verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He said this in that sermon, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath you have provoked and incensed. You hang by a slender thread. 
the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save your health, to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do that can induce God to spare you one moment. The knowledge of this should make you tremble, sir. Come under the power of God whom you stand in opposition to. That's the reality. It should cause you to tremble like Belshazzar in Daniel 5 who saw that hand writing upon the wall. His judgment upon the wall, his sentence, it should cause horror in your heart. Cause you to flee from the wrath that is to come and flee to Christ who bore God's wrath upon the tree. You ought to fear Him who is able to both destroy body and soul and hell. That's who you ought to fear. In Isaiah 33, verse 14, we read these searching words, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Is that you? Are you afraid tonight? Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Someday that fearfulness will. The mask will be exposed and taken from you. And then the question is asked, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burning? Who among us? Sinners in Zion are afraid, but you're not. You're comfortable. And yet you have had the full revelation of the gospel of Christ. You possess, no doubt, I'm sure, full knowledge, a deep perception. You know it to be true. Bears witness in your heart and your mind, young person. You know it and you stand, you stand in danger of willfully sinning against God after having received the knowledge of the truth. And that's an apostate. And for such an individual, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. The sentence is written. And for you, there is no hope. I could preach and I could pray for your soul with all the fervor and vigor. And yet, to willfully sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth is a most dangerous thing. To be an apostate. To leave the only true God and to go after the gods of this world. It's a very serious position to be in. This portion in Hebrews 10, it's designed by the Holy Ghost to put holy fear in people. That's the purpose. A twofold purpose provoking God's people to persevere in obedience and yet also to reveal 
What is the end of those who are not true to the Lord's and yet who have had many gospel privileges? Privileged. And yet on that great day, petrified. This doesn't need to be your case. You can be privileged and pardoned. You can be privileged and at peace with God. Don't make that conscious, willful choice once again to, to reject Christ this evening, to walk out without Him, but act on all that knowledge you possess, all that understanding of truth that you have, and call upon Jesus Christ as He stretches out His hands of mercy, of mercy to you tonight, and fall into His loving hand in time lest you fall into His avenging hands in eternity. Come. Come now. Come without delay. Who can tell when resisting the Spirit becomes rejecting the Spirit? Those who have done despite the Spirit of grace. Let Him deal with you in grace, lest He deals with you in judgment. May God have mercy on your soul and be pleased to apply His Word to your heart. Let's bow in prayer. This is so solemn. As I said, I... I, I tread very carefully to lay the charge of an apostate of anyone underneath the sound of my voice, whether in this building, on the internet, because such a one is beyond salvation. May God have mercy on your soul tonight. May the Spirit of God draw you to Christ. As always, we make ourselves available. If you're going out the front doors, you could slip around the side of the building, come in there, and make your way to the minister's room. Maybe tonight, in fact, the Word commands you, behold now, tonight is the night that you need to get this matter settled. All upon Christ, while mercy and grace are yet extended to you. Father in heaven, we bow before thee, solemn text of Scripture. We feel within ourselves we have not done it justice. The fearfulness of this text, the awful condition that someone could fix for themselves in this life after having received the knowledge of the truth. We pray for our young people. Pray for them tonight, Lord, that they would not play fast and loose with this matter. This is not a trivial thing. It's not something they can leave down and then pick up in years to come or walk away from and then come back to. Lord, none are guaranteed that. We pray for them. 
pray that you will work in their hearts. Pray for others. For many a time they have rejected Christ. Lord, it's not that they lack anything. To the best of our ability, we have preached the gospel. We pray that thou would mercy upon their souls. And as the Spirit still strives and convicts, brings up that sense of guilt within their hearts, the knowledge of Christ and His cross work, we pray that you would draw sinners to thyself. Bless the internet ministry. Bless the word as it's gone forth, O God, into homes, across the lands and the nations. O God, we pray that thou wouldst speak. And may Christ see if the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit, be the portion of thy people this night and forevermore. Until the day break and the shadows flee away and we're found at the feet of the blessed Redeemer. Bless us, Lord, as we leave this house. Do us good. We ask this in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.